seat.
verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as shale or as high as heaven. So the Lord, in order to get Ahaz to trust him, tells him, ask me for any sign you want. Right? As high as heaven or as deep as shale, as deep as Hades. In other words, you can ask for any supernatural sign you want.
somehow makes it right, ask your brothers and sisters and say, is this really what the Lord wants in this situation? Like, none of us should trust ourselves so much that we think that we're right all the time and we can just figure it out. Because that's what Ahaz, that Ahaz has this pride that's leading him to spiritual death. That he's able to twist and use scripture to get out of listening to the Lord and following him. And we ought not to think that that same heart of unbelief is also within us and something that we have to be at war with, church. So why? Why did Ahaz resist this sign from the Lord? What's going on here? So we don't actually have a whole lot of details in the text. We just kind of have to fill, connect the dots ourselves and fill it, fill it in. What it seems like is going on is that if Ahaz asked for a supernatural sign from God and God gave the sign, then he'd have to obey God, right? Like there'd be just no, no denying it anymore. And it seems like he doesn't want to. So he's resisting God's offer of a sign because he doesn't want to obey God. Like elsewhere in the scriptures, uh, in the book of 2 Kings, it talks about this guy and his life. It actually says that he goes so far as to burn his children alive to an idol as an offering. So this is not someone who's interested in a relationship with God. He's interested in taking care of things himself, in finding his own solution to his problems, and he wants nothing to do with this prophet. He wants nothing to do with God's signs. Right? He's resisting God. He's in this situation where he's got two evil armies bearing down on him that are going to overwhelm him, and even then he won't trust in God. Right? So to put it bluntly, church, this man would rather die than trust in God. Which is actually the situation that all of us are in until we become Christians. Right? There's something in the human heart that is opposed to depending on God because as soon as you depend on him, you're admitting that he's wiser than you, that he's greater than you, that he's more powerful than you, and that's something that nobody wants to do. Ahaz would rather die than depend on God. And without the Holy Spirit, Ross Tennyson would rather die than depend on God. So church, you, we should not see Ahaz as this awful example of wicked humanity and ourselves as in no way like him. Church, this is where we end up apart from the help of God. And when we became Christians, this is what God saved us from being so opposed to God that we would rather die than ask him for help. And then in verse 13, he says, this is what the prophet says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So Isaiah, on behalf of God, he starts addressing Ahaz, he starts addressing all of Ahaz's court, his officials who work with him. He points out that, man, Ahaz, your unbelief even wearies me. How much more does it weary God? God's weary. He's, he's tired of this man who is not trusting him. And rightfully so, right? God, God gives him all these opportunities 
to believe in him. He says, literally, I will move heaven and earth so you can believe in me. And still Ahaz, has, he holds out. He won't surrender. He won't trust. And this is where I think is one of the most amazing twists in this passage. Right? Because you would think, right? So you have God offering Ahaz a sign. Ahaz refusing it and is saying, God, I am not interested in following you. I would rather die than do that. So what, what do you think the therefore in verse 14 would say? Something like, therefore I will wipe you out. Therefore I'll destroy you. Therefore I'm done with you. Therefore have fun. These armies are going to mop you up. But that's not at all what God says. Right? That's not at all what he says. Verse 14, instead he, he says this thing that, that becomes this very familiar verse to us. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So instead of wiping out this king who deserves to be wiped out, God says, I'm going to keep giving reasons for you to trust me. Right? So notice the patience of our God with people who are refusing to trust him. This is the same patience he had with me. This is the same patience he had with you. How many years in your life did you go refusing to trust in this God? And he doesn't make snap decisions to judge people who refuse him. Instead, he continues to patiently woo them. And this evil king who does not deserve God's grace one little bit, God decides that he's going to keep wooing him. He's going to keep giving him reasons to trust him. Man, this, this morning, guys, if, if you are having trouble believing that God is warm towards you and wants to connect with you, it's just not true. Like, even if you sinned last night in an exceptionally wrong way and you're ashamed of it this morning, like, we have a father who's so patient that every time you would expect to get to a point in Scripture where he's finally going to snap, his patience is finally going to run out, he's just there giving people more opportunities. That, that's what this morning is right now. It's another opportunity. That's why we're alive. That's why there's breath in our lungs. That's why we're gathered here this morning. Our God is giving each of us opportunities to come back to him if we're wandering from him at all. So what is this sign that God offers Ahaz? Super, super trippy. It says, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So let's just, let's just take a look at this verse. There's different schools of thought like on how to interpret this. Like All, of the, all I can do is describe it the, to you the best as I can describe it. Other people would describe it different ways. I'm just going to do the best that I can do. He starts out by saying, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Okay. What does this word virgin mean? So, the Hebrew word that this comes from, it means something along the lines of young woman of a marriageable age. So what this means is that there's going to be a young woman who 
is old enough to be married, old enough to bear children, who's going to have a baby, probably in an ordinary way. That's the sign. That's the sign that he's going to give to him. It's likely that this sign, this child, is actually one of Isaiah's kids. So one of Isaiah's kids, Isaiah's wife is going to have a kid, and that's going to be a sign to this king. So Isaiah 8.18 says, Behold, I, this is Isaiah speaking, and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents, which is another word for symbol, in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on the Mount of Zion. So a sign, right, is something, a symbol that points to something greater than itself. So this child is going to be a symbol that points to something greater than itself. Like the Lord's Supper is a sign. The Lord's Supper is a symbol. We get the little itty-bitty bread and the little itty-bitty juice, right? And it's a sign that points to what Christ has done for us. So this is a sign. This, this child's a sign. What is the child a sign of? Well, it says that you will call this name, child's name Emmanuel. Church, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us, yeah. So this, this sign, this child, is pointing to our deepest need, that the God that we are distant from and far off from because of our sin is going to live with us, right? He's going to abide with us. That's what this child is pointing to, renewed intimacy with the God we need more than anything. Okay, what else? What else does the child point to? What else does the sign point to? Verse 16 says, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So God says this child's going to grow up, and by the time, a few years from now, when he has an awareness of what's right and wrong, these two kings that you're really afraid of right now, that seem so powerful right now, that seem like they would destroy you right now, they're going to be nothing. They're going to be gone. So this child is a sign that God is going to restore relationship with his people and completely cut down and destroy their enemies. He's going to provide for them himself. He's going to protect them from the things that want to hurt them. This child is pointing to the fact that God is going to meet, right, the most basic needs people have. Now, how does this work, though, right? Like, how is this child a sign? That's the most perplexing part of this passage. Like, Isaiah's wife has a kid, and that's supposed to all of a sudden help Ahaz to snap out of his unbelief and trust God. Like, is anyone else a little bit confused by that? Like, how, how does this child that Isaiah's wife is going to have, how is that some sort of sign that's supposed to take this person from someone who's not a follower of God and help him become a follower of God at the most desperate moment of his life? Super hard to kind of figure out how these all fit together. So here's what I suspect is going on. Is that childbirth in the Bible is not a neutral concept at all. It's one that's filled with rich meaning rich symbolism and rich prophecy. So if we rewind and go back to the book of Genesis, okay, all the way back to the beginning, Adam and Eve sinned, right? And they were exiled from the garden. They they stepped out of the presence of God because of their sin. Adam and Eve lost Emmanuel. They could no longer say Emmanuel. They could no longer say God with us anymore. 
after their sin, right? After they're exiled from the garden, after they're removed from the presence of God, God shows up and he talks to them and he makes them a promise that Eve is going to have an offspring, a child, who's going to defeat the serpent, the enemy who created this mess, and restore relationship with God. Right? So that Adam and Eve lost Emmanuel. They lost God being with us. God promises, I'm going to send you a child who's going to defeat the enemy, defeat sin and death, and bring about Emmanuel again. And all throughout the scripture, right, there's miraculous births. There's children being born in miraculous circumstances. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and all these events that are looking forward to the fulfillment of this promise. The restoring of Emmanuel. So this this sign, this this child who, who is born to Isaiah's wife, would have been a symbol that would have looked back to God's purpose, to the story that God was writing, that he was going to send a child who was going to do away with sin and death and restore Emmanuel, restore God with us, and it's looking forward to when that child finally comes. It's like what God is saying to Ahaz is, Ahaz, you need to believe these promises that I made to you. Right? I'm going to give you a sign that in your time, you're going to have this child, and I'm going to destroy these kings, and it's going to look back at the promise I made at the beginning and look forward to the time where my son comes, this offspring comes, and finally defeats the curse of sin and death that has been ruining the world since the beginning. Right? The sign of that baby is supposed to bring him out of his little world of sin and doubt and self-sufficiency and bring him into an awareness of the big picture of what God is doing in in the Bible and his story. And and before I go any further, I just want to go on the record and say that I I just love that God chooses babies as a sign to point to his work. Like, I love babies. You love babies, as is clear, because you keep having so many of them. And like, man, it, I, I can get in these ruts right in my mind where I'm discouraged with life, I'm discouraged with myself, I'm discouraged with things until I look at a little baby smiling and I'm not thinking about any of that anymore. And so I just think God is so wise, so wise to use a little baby as a sign that he's going to make the world right, that he's really creative. And, and babies are really amazing not just randomly, but because they're pointing towards something that God is doing. And, they, and this child, particular child, was meant to call this king out of his unbelief. Like God, God could have just made a mountain flip upside down and said, there's your sign, Ahaz, but he chose to use a little baby because it connects to the story of what he's doing in the world. So it's happening here in this passage. So how does this now relate to Christmas and Advent? Like, how, how, how does this all come together? Right? The, the story that happens hundreds of years before Christmas and Advent, how does this come together? So if we fast forward to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 20 says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph, he's afraid, just like Ahaz, right? He has his fears. A messenger of the Lord shows up, just like Isaiah showed up to Ahaz. And he says to Joseph, don't be afraid to marry this woman. This child in her is from me, and he's going to save his people from his sins. Right, This ultimate enemy we're all facing this morning, sin and death. This child is coming to confront those things. Right? This could be, this is the one that Genesis 3.15 was looking forward to. The one who would finally give us Emmanuel again. Then he goes on, right? Matthew writes in verse 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Part of me goes, when I read that, I go, wait a second. Wait wait a second. How, How is this child who was born 800 years ago as a sign to Ahaz have anything to do with Jesus being born all those years later? And how can Matthew say this happened to fulfill that? Like how, how does that all connect together? It doesn't feel like those verses fit. Matthew uses the word fulfill, which means that Jesus is bringing something to completion. Okay, so he's bringing something to completion. And often when we think of biblical prophecy, we think of a prediction and the prediction being correct, which is a part of prophecy in the Bible, right? So like the Old Testament says, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Where was he born? Bethlehem, right? Like the Bible is right 100% of the time. And that is a form of prophecy, but it's not the only form of prophecy. Another way prophecy works in the scriptures is that Jesus fulfills patterns in the Bible. So God works and he keeps working in that way to rescue and help people over and over and over again. And finally, when Jesus comes, he does it better than anyone who did before him. He completes the pattern. After the fall of humanity into sin and death, God started to use childbirth as a way to perpetuate human life, as a symbol that he's going to make it right. And then finally, he does make it right through the ultimate childbirth. That's what happens when Jesus comes. There's this pattern that's incomplete. It's lacking. We all have children, right? We all hope they'll make the world a better place. They ultimately can't. And there's one who can. There's one who completes that pattern. And his name is Jesus. That's how he fulfills this sign. Ahaz had something that pointed to Jesus but was not Jesus, Jesus comes and he completes what what Ahaz could have hoped in. That for which God's people long for generations and generations, they received in part, and we have received in full in Jesus. In Isaiah's day, God defeated temporary enemies who threatened physical lives. 
In Jesus, God defeats permanent enemies like sin and death. In Isaiah's day, God reminded his people that it was his plan to come and live with them again. In Jesus, he actually does come and live with us again. In Isaiah's day, a natural birth pointed to God's work of destroying and defeating natural enemies. In Jesus, a supernatural birth, God actually defeats supernatural enemies like sin and death. He completes everything that the Old Testament was building up towards, looking forward to, and not perfectly meeting, he meets it. So the main point I want us to walk away with this morning, I want us to leave with, is that the birth of Jesus is a sign that we can really trust our God with all the fears and burdens that we're carrying in with us this morning. Like if this child born in Ahaz's day was meant to be a sign to him that he could trust God, how much more Jesus should be a sign to us that we can trust our God? And when I, when I spend my time ruminating on things, anxieties, pains, hurts, like I am not believing that Jesus is enough to take care of me. So this is a sermon for me because I'm not believing this sign as much as I should. Just think about it. Just think about it. If God was going to spend thousands of years preparing the way for Jesus to come, and he sent him, he goes through the effort of sending Jesus after thousands of ways, years of preparing the way for him, isn't he going to help you with whatever you need help with? Like, would he go through all that effort to send Jesus and then just leave you out to dry? Does that even add up? And if God didn't mean to help you with all of the burdens and pains that you're bearing, like, would he have crossed the barrier from heaven and earth, from infinity to time? He wouldn't have. I once heard the incarnation where Jesus becomes a man described as the most amazing miracle in the entire Bible, barring none. Right? God becoming a baby. God becoming Emmanuel. And if God's going to do that, it could only be because he's actually going to help us. Like, he's not going to cross that barrier. He's not going to go to those lengths to be here for us, to be Emmanuel, and then leave us out to be eaten up by our anxieties, eaten up by our cares, eaten up by our worries. I think one concern, one, one thing that we should be aware of this, this holiday season, this Advent, is, is um, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about this in his book, Spiritual Depression, that so often Christians seem no less burdened than people who aren't saved, seem no less anxious than people who aren't saved, seem no less despondent than people who aren't saved. Right? And, and that should not be the case. Like, if we have a reason for hope that the world doesn't have, we should not come across as anxious, worried, sad, and despondent as the world does. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you can turn a switch. I'm saying I'm right here with you. Like, there's certain injuries I have in my body that are not healing, and it is, creates anxiety in me. It creates fear in me. It creates worry in me. Like, this COVID situation isn't ending like I was ready for it to two years ago. 
and it creates a sense of discouragement about the future. I'm trying to plan a wedding, and I'm reading about new COVID variants. Like, come on. And yet, if I let my fears and anxieties grip me like the world does, it's not any testimony that I have a hope that's different from their hope. I think in this text, God is saying to us, didn't I come for you after thousands of years of building up towards it? Didn't I cross the barrier of heaven and earth to come to rescue you? Didn't I give you a sign greater than any sign that's ever been given to anyone that you can trust me? That's what I want us to walk away with this morning. You can trust him with whatever anxiety you're bringing here that is weighing you down that is making you despondent, that is making you anxious, that is making you worried. You might say, Ross, that is easier said than done. Like, I can't just flip a switch and make my emotions change. And I understand that. I understand there's a such thing as clinical depression and anxiety and all those things that are part of our fallen world. So I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying that you pretend you're not sad because... There are real sadnesses and real hurts in this room, and I'm not saying stuff your emotions and put a grin on your face, because that is not at all what our God would want us to do. I'm asking us to turn our attention from the things that's creating the fear and anxiety onto our hope. God gave us something to meditate on, to thank him for, to draw assurance from, so that we can be sorrowful, yet even more rejoicing all the time. Like, he didn't just ask us to do those things and then give us nothing to fix our minds on in order to draw that from. And I just want us to walk away feeling like the birth of the Lord Jesus, God becoming a man, is one more reason, one more thing that we have to think about that we can draw strength from to fight against our depression, to fight against our anxieties, to fight against our fears and our pains this Advent season. This child did come into the world. He did come to be with us. He did come as Emmanuel. And if God were not going to be the solution to our problems, he would not come as a baby, period. He would not have come as a baby if he were not going to be the solution to our problems. And this baby was the solution to our problems. He grew up. He dies on a cross. He buries all our sin in the grave. He sets us free. And then Jesus says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Man, we get to live forever with the Savior. We can trust him in the meantime with our cares and our worries, can't we, church? So here's one application I want us to walk away from. When you are facing in the next few weeks, and as you go to see your families, and as you walk through the difficulties of Christmas, when you are facing different disappointments, fears and worries, pause and pray this prayer. God, if you became a baby in order to rescue me and to rescue the whole world, surely you can help me with this. Instead of ruminating, right? Instead of being caught in that, if you pray that, church, I trust that our Lord is going to set you free from things and set me free from things that I feel trapped by right now. 
and we will become more and more this joyful people who our very attitudes and demeanors are going to point people towards the God that we worship. And if you're here this morning and you've never met this Jesus, he's never forgiven your sins, you don't have this hope, God isn't with you, Emmanuel's not true for you, it could be. It could be. Please don't leave this room without talking to me, talking to one of our members. We would love to pray with you and talk to you about how this child who is the hope of all the world could be your hope. So please pray with me. Lord, we sang this morning, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, because we are desperate for you. And everything about us that's broken, everything about us in this world that's broken, reminds us how desperate we are for you, God. And I just ask that we could worship you as a desperate people this morning. That we would feel that in our hearts, how badly we need you. And that we would look to what you gave us, the sign of your coming into the world, as a reason that we can hope in you, God. Help us to be a desperate and hoping people this morning. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Just um, invite you during the reflection time to pray that prayer right now that I talked about. Like, think about what is the biggest burden and care that's hindering my joy and peace in God. And then pray. You can pray it out loud if you want. Lord, if you became a baby to rescue the world and rescue me, you can surely help me with this thing.